would you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? I know you've been sitting for a long time. <laughs> I, um, when I think about this fellowship meal that comes after this this morning, um, I just get really excited when I think about if, if, if everyone would just think about some people you could thank today, it would just be like this, this amazing chorus of praise to God. You know, like teenagers, um, who watched you in the nursery if you were at GBC back then? How about thanking them? Who taught you in children's church? How about thanking them? And, and it's also not just, today is not, I know we've, we've tried to point out some of those who've been here a long time and talked about some of that, but we're not just thinking back to the good old days uh, today. The good old days are today and what God is doing today. And so don't forget to thank those people that are also freshly encouraging our hearts today. You know, the, like the David Azimiara and just his eagerness to grow in the Lord. And how, how many of you have told me what Joe and Barbara's words of testimony have already meant, meant to you? And Nate, Mariah, Mariah, thank you for sharing that with us earlier today. And Robin, who couldn't be here the, today because she's been helping her dad and is driving back. And thank those folks, too, um, for what God has done. And all that just, like, echoes to the Lord because there's only one way a whole bunch of sinners can can do what is so worthy of thanks. And it's grace, right? So all that is to the praise of the glory of his grace. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2, and these, these verses at the end of this chapter that we come to now in our regular study are verses that have been, I think, probably since my late teen years when God was really leading me into pastoring. These have been very meaningful words. I, I could preach a little sermon to you today on from these verses on a pastor's heart for his people, and I just know that if I try that, I won't emotionally make it through. I won't preach the sermon. I'm not afraid to cry in front of you. I just know I wouldn't make it. So I'm not going to focus on that, but these are verses that have been richly meaningful to me. First Thessalonians 2, verse 17, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So we already know how Paul and Silas and Timothy planted this church and then the angry opposition rose up right away within just a few months and they were suddenly torn away. Look how Paul says it here. Since we were torn away from you, brothers. Now, torn away is a good figurative translation of that word. That's a great way to translate it. Literally, this is the word that referred to being orphaned. Paul says we were orphaned from you, brothers. Now, maybe he's thinking of the terrible pain of a parent being separated from their children. But that's not quite what he seems to say, right? We were orphaned. Who's the orphan? Paul and Silas and Timothy. One ancient Christian teacher wrote, he sought for a word that might sufficiently show the pain of his soul. Not only did the Thessalonians need Paul and Silas and Timothy, but they needed the Thessalonians. When they were torn apart, it was like all of them were orphaned. And that's because everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. 1 John 5.1 
God gives his children a deep love for one another as brothers and sisters, and he places us into church families where we depend upon one another and we need one another. That's true of pastors needing you as much as you needing us. And when you pull that apart, it's like being orphaned. Now, Paul says that he hoped it would only be for a short time because he was going to come back, but then he didn't get to come back. In verse 17, he says also, they were torn away. We were orphaned in person, not in heart. Like, you can make my body leave town, but you're not making my heart and mind leave town. I'm staying here with these Thessalonians. And so he says at the end of verse 17 that he didn't just want to come back. He endeavored to, he was trying actively. He took the action more eagerly. It says in verse 17, he kept passionately trying, it says, with great desire, and he kept personally trying. See, verse 18 is one of those places in the letter where he switches to the first person. He says, I, Paul, again and again. He was repeatedly trying. He wasn't going to let them miss just how much they meant to him, was he? But the end of verse 18, he says, but Satan hindered us. Somehow all those eager efforts came up empty because Satan loves to snatch away new seed and devour new believers and destroy new churches. But Satan couldn't take away Paul's heart for them. So then in verses 19 and 20, he goes on to explain even more about why he so badly wanted to return. So verse 19, for here's why we were so eager to return. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You know, we should live focused on the meaning of the present moment for the future. Don't focus on the present moment itself, but on the meaning of the present moment for eternity. And so Paul was thinking ahead to something that was going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. He uses a word at the end of verse 19 that refers to when Jesus arrives or when Jesus becomes present because Jesus will come. Jesus will arrive. We will be in His presence. And so Paul asks us to consider what will be His hope or joy or crown of boasting when he's in the presence of Jesus someday. And that word or in between those things doesn't mean you have to pick. He's just, you could say it this way or you could say it this way. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? And then he asks, isn't it you? Now, we already read the verse. And some of you have read 1 Thessalonians 2 hundreds of times in your life. You know the answer. But remember, the Thessalonians heard this letter read out loud to them. And when Paul asked the question, they didn't know what he was going to say next. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? And they're waiting. And then when Paul gives his answer, I think in modern lingo, their first thought was probably, wait, what? Us? Yes, you. Verse 20. You are our glory and joy. When Paul and Silas and Timothy stand in the presence of Jesus, their hope and joy and crown of boasting and glory and, what's the word he repeats? Joy will be the people. The people whom they served with the gospel. The people whom they pastored. The brothers and sisters in Christ whom they loved. Now, part of what is happening here is that Paul is considering how he's going to know that he's been faithful to his calling as an apostle. And he's saying that the people will be the true evidence of his ministry. 
That's why he refers to the crown of boasting, which is that wreath given to victorious athletes. That's why he uses the word glory here. To say it just kind of roughly, his, his job performance as an apostle was going to be evaluated based on people, not building, not budgets, not fame, but people. They would be the prize that mattered when he gave account to Christ. So that idea is found here, the idea of, of, of Paul's faithfulness to his calling. But that's not all that's here because he doesn't just talk about that crown of exaltation. He doesn't just talk about glory. He also talks about hope, and the word he repeats is the word joy. What will bring Paul joy when he stands in the presence of Jesus? What will bring you joy when you stand in the presence of Jesus? And he says to the Thessalonians, isn't it you? And then he says, yes, it is. (laughs) Just in case they might say, no, it couldn't be me. Yes, it is. For you are our joy. And see, that's present tense, not just then, though that's true, but even right now. Now look, we understand that when we stand in the presence of Christ, our greatest joy will be Christ. We know that. The essence of heaven is God himself. But this is a great point to not be smarter than the Bible. Jesus saved us to live for him. Jesus called us to proclaim the excellencies of him. Jesus called us to be going, doing, disciple-making things all of our days. He put us into church families where we deeply care for one another. And He will come again as the Master who left us behind to do His work until He returns. And His work is people work. Jesus is saving and changing sinners. And so, yes, it is absolutely true that Jesus Himself will be our greatest joy and nothing will rival that. And yet, when you stand in the presence of Jesus, there will be another source of great joy, and that will be people. And not just people in theory, but people whom you knew and loved and served and walked with here on earth. Don't miss this. When you stand in the presence of Jesus, Paul is telling you those people will be present with you. Some translations even translate verse 19 to highlight that, like the New American Standard. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul and the Thessalonians would be in the presence of the Lord Jesus together, and there will be joy, okay? So I'm going to, let's just ask what this means for pastors, and that's the part I can't, <laughs> I can't talk about too long. Um, and then let's talk about what this means for you. First of all, I'm just going to say, as I have had the privilege of serving here as a pastor, I can read these verses and hear what Paul says and just shout, Amen. They could tear my body away from you, but they could not take my heart away from you. You are my glory and joy. And I know that the other pastors would say the same. But the principle here is for every one of you, just as much as it is for your pastors, when Jesus comes again, what will you be thankful you have lived for? Better, when Jesus comes again, who will you be thankful you have lived for? What will you look back upon with joy? Whom will you look around upon with joy in the presence of Jesus? Who will you be standing with? What people whom you loved and served? What people whom you told about Jesus? What people whose feet you washed, whose 
worship guides you folded, whose lawn you mowed, whose tears you wiped, whose burdens you shared, whose questions you answered, whose sins you expressed forgiveness because they sinned against you, whose spiritual victories were answers to your prayers. When Jesus comes again, who will you be thankful you have loved and served because they'll be right there with you? So I was pondering this week. Why do we celebrate anniversaries? What's the difference between 20 and 19 and 21? You know, it's kind of arbitrary, right? Why do we do things like that? Maybe it's because we have a sense that we're so fleeting. God has set eternity in our hearts, and we know that this earthly life is just a vapor. And so when something good lasts for 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years, we celebrate. It is worth celebrating when something good lasts in this broken world. And yet, if it's right to celebrate, I mean, in a sense, isn't it almost silly? that we get excited about 20 years when we know we can live for things that are going to last forever. I don't think we're going to do 10-year anniversaries in heaven because we're not going to be dying people. We're not going to be in a broken world. It's just going to continue. So if we would celebrate what lasts 20 years How much more should we celebrate anything that will last into eternity? We're celebrating 20 years of GBC, but we're not celebrating because we need to hold on to something earthly. We're not celebrating because it's essential that GBC last a long time, though we want that to be the case. We're celebrating 20 years because it's 20 years of God doing things that will matter when GBC is long gone. I almost called this message the untemporary church because every earthly congregation is temporary. And yet, what goes on here in these temporary churches isn't temporary at all. What will be our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? These people, when you stand there together, you know, when we all get to heaven, nobody will be comparing churches. We'll be thrilled by every brother and sister, no matter what church they came from. And yet, we will know those whom we walked with in our church family. And being in Jesus' presence with them will give us so much joy. And by the way, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what if the treasure you have laid up in heaven is people? Then where's your heart? So in God's kindness, my parents are here this morning, as you've seen. My dad began pastoring in the fall of 1958, and he and mom have served side by side in ministry for these 65 years. And I want to ask you a very hard, serious, wonderful question. And I'm asking it to you in front of them. What do they have today? They've moved to Reno, Nevada. Dad isn't pastor of a church. Mom isn't teaching Christian school classes, leading Bible studies like she did for so many decades. Now, there are church families that remain in several places where Dad pastored. 
but mom and dad aren't there. Those churches are pastored by other people, and many of the people in those churches don't know who mom and dad are. So in a sense, pastoring those churches was temporary, and best of my knowledge, there's no John Lovegrove Memorial University or anything like that. So I'm asking you, what do they have? Well, they have lots of wisdom. They still have <clears throat> lots to They still have lots to give and serve and use. They're not done. They have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids who love them. And these these bodies are still sticking around, hunched over, increasingly frail and They've got trembling hands and they've got a week's calendar full of all these medical appointments. But is that all that they have? Was all of that ministry really temporary? They don't have it here today. It's not with them. But what if you look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 through their eyes? Can you picture it? Can you picture mom and dad looking with joy on each one whose life they touched by the grace and mercy of God. But forget about them. Really. God's going to take good care of them. And none of us, praise God, none of us have to live up to them (laughs) and what God called them to do. You know, the only reason why you can do ministry that long is because God keeps your body going. He won't do that for all of us. We're, We're called to different things than them. So don't worry about them. How about you? Can you picture yourself in the presence of Jesus looking around at some people who make your heart leap for joy? Every church is temporary. But oh, it is not temporary. These are those with whom you will stand before Jesus someday with joy. As you look around today, you might see some things that you don't like very much. You see sinners. And I know as pastor, because sometimes people tell me, sometimes we look around at our church family and we say, yuck. But oh boy, when our sin is cleansed away forever, and when all of our awkwardness and foolishness and selfishness is washed away, and when we stand resurrected and glorified by Christ, you won't look at these people and say, yuck you will look around and they will be your joy. At any given moment, a church might not look so beautiful or appealing, but it is not temporary. And Jesus is making it beautiful. And He's doing that through us and our ministry to one another and our ministry of hope, like Dad said, out those doors to the world. And so, brothers and sisters, if God still has us here today, which appears to be the case, we're not done. We're not done investing in eternity. We're not done laying up treasure in heaven. Is World War III about to happen? I don't know. But we're not done. Here we are. Is California going to drive us all out? (laughs) I don't know. But we're here today. Is next year's election going to drive us all insane? Probably. But we're not done. We're still here. Will our hearts beat on tomorrow? I don't know. But right now, today, we're not done. We look at the globe. 
We look at the nation. We look at the state. We look at the county. We look at the local issues. Yes, we've got to look at all those things. But don't fail to look at the people in here and out there and then look ahead to when you stand in the presence of Jesus with them. Earlier you you heard from my dear friend, Pastor Ron Perry. He pastors in Northern California. And many years ago, Ron said to me, it's worth it for one. For one person who will make your heart leap with joy when you stand before Jesus with them. So I know there are battles to be fought. I know a lot better than I used to know. I know there are political issues worthy of our attention. I know that California is a battleground and I'm fighting with you in that. But as we fight those important battles, don't lose sight of the picture of you in the presence of our Lord Jesus with people whom you have influenced toward Christ. So when we leave this 20th anniversary Sunday, after you go thank your, all the different people who've been part of your joy in different ways and we go home A wonderful mindset for us all would be this. Okay, Lord, we're apparently not done. So let's look around in our communities and in our church. Where is somebody I could share Christ with? It's worth it for one. Where is somebody I could pray for? Where is somebody I could serve? Where is somebody whose questions about the Bible I could answer? Where is somebody whose burdens I could bear? Focus on what the present moment could mean for eternity. Focus on people and what God might do through you in the lives of others. I want to finish by reading you a poem, a song that's very meaningful to me. It's actually by Joyful Noise, who wrote Not Unto Us, which we're going to sing in just a second. They wrote this also. This is a precious text for today. It's, it's inspired by Jesus and the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. So I'm going to start reading it myself um, to you. Jesus I will walk with you, companion for the way, my constant friend and faithful guide beside me every day. Through times of winter, harsh and bare, through summer's gentle breeze, I'll walk with faith and hope and love for Jesus walks with me. Jesus I will walk with you attentive to your voice in every written word you speak and make my heart rejoice. Though now I walk an unseen road, in prayer I know your peace and walk with persevering faith for Jesus walks with me. Jesus, I will walk with you the way of victory The stranglehold of sin is gone. Your blood has set me free. And though my sin is deep and dark, your Spirit's power will be my daily strength to walk with you. For Jesus walks with me. Would you read this last verse with me? Can we just do it out loud together? Jesus, I will walk with you salvation's ancient way where countless 